You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Attention and focus are so inherent in our human experience that most of us never stop to think about what they mean, why they're important, and how to preserve them. But as our attention becomes an increasingly precious commodity, it's in our best interest for all of us to learn about how to preserve focus and make deliberate choices about attention. The importance of understanding attention and focus is magnified for yoga teachers because both of these concepts play a vital role in yoga practice. So let's get on the same page about definitions first. When I use the word attention, I'm referring to your brain's ability to actively process specific information about your environment while tuning out other details. Our brain's attentional system is responsible for noticing things, selecting what's important to pay attention to, and directing the brain's resources to those important things. Focus is basically sustained attention on one thing over a longer period of time. When you pay attention to that one thing long enough to engage with it more than a surface level, that's focus. If you've been studying yoga for any length of time, these definitions may be starting to ring a bell. From the classical yoga system described by Patanjali, the sixth and seventh limbs of dharana and dhyana have some striking parallels to the concepts of attention and focus. Dharana is active concentration on one point, and dhyana is when the concentration, your concentration, is absorbed into the point of focus. These two limbs, along with the third limb of samadhi, are basically describing meditation. Meditation is a broad umbrella term that describes a set of pretty diverse practices that are designed to cultivate specific mental qualities and skills through focus and attention. Many forms of meditation are specifically about paying attention to your attention, or more accurately, your lack of attention. The human brain evolved in circumstances where deep, unbroken focus would have often been a pretty dangerous state. Our ancestors needed to be distractible so that they would notice when their lives were suddenly in danger. And although our environment and culture has changed a tremendous amount over the past several million years, our brains actually have not. So while we may think that the lack of ability to focus is a distinctly modern problem, It's also important to mention that for as long as humans have been writing things down, they've been bemoaning their struggle to focus. The 6th century Christian monk, St. Abba Dorotheus, for example, has been quoted as saying, Everything you do, be it great or small, is but one-eighth of the problem. For to keep one's attention undisturbed is the other seven-eighths. So before television, before telephones, and before social media, our ancestors already had noticed how difficult it is to maintain attention on one thing long enough to accomplish it. And while our culture has evolved in ways that challenge our focus to ever greater degrees, 
let's take some comfort in the fact that this would be the case even without cell phones, televisions, and laptops. At the same time, it's also true that the level of challenge we experience as humans has now been magnified into enormous proportions. Attention is limited in both capacity and duration. So that's an important quality to know that we do not have unlimited capacity for attention. Paying attention to one thing depletes our ability to pay attention to something else. So choices about where we place our attention have big consequences in what ends up happening in our lives. Because of this, the ability to manage attentional resources help us both make sense of the world and also help us have agency over how our lives turn out. And in order to prevent overwhelm, our brains give us the gift of blocking out data and sensory input that is deemed unimportant or irrelevant. The part of the brain that chooses what you're paying attention to is called the central executive, also known more commonly as the executive function. In an environment with more sensory input, your central executive has more work to do. In addition to deciding what to pay attention to, your central executive also predicts what might happen in the future and plans out how you will respond. So for example, when you set goals and plan out everything you need to do to accomplish that goal step-by-step, step, those planning tasks are controlled by the central executive. And because it's a network with limited resources, it's unrealistic to expect your central executive to consistently make good decisions about what actions to take when it's being bombarded by sensory stimuli, that especially sensory stimuli that's designed to capture your attention, like bright lights, unexpected noises, and movements pretty much everything our devices are designed to deliver. Pratyahara, or sense withdrawal, is a place of rest for our attentional system, and meditation is basically exercise. But the funny thing is many of us try meditation a few times, realize it's hard, and then push it away deciding it's not for us, which is sort of like people who say, I'm not flexible enough to do yoga. I mean, I literally hear people say, many people say, my mind is too busy to meditate. After I have the same reaction that many yoga teachers have when they hear the first statement about being too not flexible enough to do yoga, I recognize that, wow, so many people, even yoga teachers, have as much misconception about the word meditation as the general public has about the word yoga. I think there are a lot of unexamined assumptions that meditation should feel good. We expect that we're going to be able to sit and focus for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even an hour without significant preparation and in this incredibly rich sensory world that we live in. That's like jumping in to a CrossFit workout after being sedentary for decades. Another misconception is we think meditation is only useful once we hit the state of dhyana, meaning that we successfully hold our attention on one thing over this longer period of time. But dharana is important too, and none of us are going to build the skill for dhyana if we don't practice dharana. I think the first thing that's really important to acknowledge before embarking on a meditation practice is that meditation is hard. That's the point. If it were easy, we wouldn't need it. 
it's exercise for the mind. So if you're not struggling with it, at least at first, that would be weird. That would be unexpected. Meditation is about training your brain to pay attention without elaboration and also shift at will between narrow sustained focus and open monitoring. Narrow focus is like looking through a straw. Your field of vision is tiny and precise. If you don't immediately see something that seems important within that narrow field of vision, you're going to get bored really quickly. Yet it's very important to have that ability to focus in a narrow way in order to go deep into anything. Open monitoring, on the other hand, is where you allow your attention to notice many things at once without giving special attention to any of them. And the skill of open monitoring is about making deliberate decisions about what you're going to place your attention on. Both of these skills are challenging. Our tendency is to jump from one narrow focus to another. In fact, this jumping of narrow focus, looking through a straw from one thing to another without pausing to zoom out and decide is one way of describing the traits of ADHD. ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a spectrum disorder that describes a difficulty in sitting still or a difficulty in sustaining focus at will or both. Underneath the umbrella diagnosis of ADHD, there are three subtypes, primarily inattentive, primarily hyperactive, and both hyperactive and inattentive. The word spectrum disorder refers to the fact that the qualities of this disorder are actually present to some degree in all of us, and it only becomes a disorder when it impairs social or occupational functioning. So think about the child who can't sit still in school. When you're a child, school is your occupation. And if you're constantly getting in trouble for moving around when you're not supposed to, then your functioning is a mismatch with your environment. So this really speaks to the fact that ADHD is actually situation specific. If you exist in a situation where you're expected to move a lot and respond quickly to unexpected or unusual outside stimuli, then the exact same traits that, it, that describe ADHD would be considered functional and adaptive. However, take a person with the exact same genetic makeup and put them in a situation where they're expected to sit still for long periods of time and focus on things that other people have deemed important, those same traits would be maladaptive and impair your ability to function. People with ADHD are actually really great at focusing. In fact, they have the tendency to hyper-focus when there's a topic or activity that really interests them, that their brain has interpreted as being important. What they don't do well is decide to focus on things they've been told are important by somebody else. And what some of the latest neuroscience research is showing about ADHD is that a big part of the challenge is in switching from big picture open focus to narrow focus. Instead, people with ADHD tend to swing their narrow focus around more erratically, landing on anything that captures their attention through their brain's own interpretation of salience. And salience basically means worth paying attention to. Qualities like speed, movement, sound, and volume, and color are shortcuts for our brain when deciding what things in our environment are important to pay attention to. Think about the environment our, where our brains evolved. We spent most of our time outdoors and were as likely to be the hunted as the hunter. In this situation, having an attention system that jumps quickly towards a bright light, a loud noise, or a quick movement was an evolutionary advantage. 
in today's world where this kind of sensory input is both much more common and also much less likely to signify something important, the ability to tune these out has actually become the advantage. And the very same qualities that helped our ancestors to survive has been labeled a disorder. I believe that many of the people who end up teaching yoga as a career express traits that in some situations would be described as ADHD. First of all, yoga as it's practiced today is primarily a physical practice. People with ADHD tend to feel more at home and engaged when moving their bodies. These physical practices also lead to a feeling of calm focus, which is something that ADHD neurotypes recognize as being valued in our culture and struggle to achieve without movement. Finally, the skill set of teaching yoga is primarily about responding moment by moment to the sensory stimuli in the yoga classroom. So teaching yoga has made many people with ADHD feel both successful and fulfilled because the skill set is a good match for their strengths. However, over the past two decades, the skills needed to feel successful as a yoga teacher have expanded in a way that makes teaching yoga much more challenging for people with ADHD. First, increased competition in the form of many, many new teachers led to a pressure to differentiate themselves by specializing, i.e. having a specific niche. Then, in order to communicate about that niche, yoga teachers needed to learn about and implement marketing. In the spring of 2020, when most yoga teachers pivoted to teach online, those with ADHD had a triple whammy. First, the sensory input of being in the classroom with their students was reduced or eliminated. Other distractions of teaching from home were amplified, and an entirely new set of skills in the form of technology became essential. Perhaps you are one of the teachers who thrived during this pivot. Maybe you already felt confident in your teaching skills and found the tech skills to be engaging. In that case, you might've been able to overcome the additional distractions of teaching from home. But if you're one of the many teachers who either never took to teaching online or maybe even started teaching during the pandemic and wondered why it felt so much harder than you were expecting, this conversation might give you some clues about why. If you're alive, you're somewhere on the spectrum between really good at sitting still and tuning out outside stimuli or really good at being super alert as you respond to whatever comes your way. If you're on that first end of the spectrum, you probably already love to meditate and it probably comes easily to you. But most of us struggle with meditation at least a bit. And part of us, and part of this is because the world we live in is pushing us towards the ADHD end of the spectrum, even as the expectations for our abilities push us towards the other side. You see, all the little bleeps and beeps in our world release spikes of the neurotransmitter dopamine in our brains. When dopamine spikes, it always then drops below our natural baseline. And a ton of blips and beeps leads to chronically low levels of dopamine, which feels pretty crappy and causes us to seek more spikes. This is actually the same mechanism for some of the most addictive drugs in the world, like cocaine and methamphetamines. But it's also the mechanism for video game addiction and social media addiction. And ADHD is strongly correlated with low levels of dopamine. Now, whether that's a genetic predisposition or it's environmental, we don't necessarily know, and it's probably a combination of both. 
So the same behaviors that we seek when our dopamine is low exacerbates low dopamine and also exacerbates restlessness and difficulty in paying attention to things that might be important, but don't instinctively feel important to your brain. So once we've identified this pattern and the challenges that we're swimming in, what do we do about it? I see two complementary approaches that can be helpful to resolve the mitch the mismatch between skill set and environment. One is to change your environment and two is to encourage or develop the skill set. If you're able to completely change your environment so that you're no longer expected to sit still and focus, then that would be really awesome, right? If you could literally quit your job doing one thing and just go do something that you're naturally good at, that would definitely be the easiest solution. But most of us are only going to be able to make modest changes to the environment we live in, such as setting boundaries around screen time, reducing the number of sounds and lights, and either taking breaks from social media or setting strong boundaries around our use of it, or maybe even eliminating it entirely. Beyond changing our environment, the best way to cultivate the skill set of focus is meditation. While there are many, many types of meditation out there, they generally fall into one of two categories, focused attention and open attention. In focused attention meditation, you bring your attention to a specific object, thought, or sensation again and again with the goal of sustaining focus. In open attention meditation, you observe your mind wherever it wanders while attempting to maintain a wider lens that encompasses all the interoceptive stimuli available in the moment. Both focused attention meditation and open attention meditation are useful, and they cultivate these two ways of shifting our attention, the narrow focus and the wide focus. If you've only tried the more narrow focused meditation, you might find that open attention meditation feels easier and more enjoyable. This doesn't mean that you should only practice open attention meditation and neglect focused attention meditation, but it does mean that you can adapt your approach based on what comes more easily to you. What I do personally is I start with open attention meditation when I'm feeling more scattered and it's hard for me to even convince myself to meditate. And I begin with focused attention meditation when I'm in a better place. So I try to do both of them each session because for me, the open attention meditation is almost a reward for the focus attention meditation. Or like I said, when I start with the open attention meditation, it helps me arrive. It helps me cultivate the skill set to be ready to practice the focused attention meditation. There are many, many sources out there for learning about meditation, but I recommend finding one that incorporates insights from neurobiology. Sources that don't use an up-to-date understanding of neuroscience often rely on data from people who had a specific neurotype and lived in an environment that is different from our current circumstances. You need to stick to the practice in order to see results, and you're much more likely to stick to it if you can take a customized, personalized approach. Right now, I'm working on a course that approaches both the environment and the skill set necessary for focus. It's called Focus and Flow. If you're listening to this podcast shortly after it's released, you can join me for the first pilot program by going to teachingyoga.net slash focus dash and dash flow.
If you are listening later, you can check to see if registration is open or sign up for the interest list at the same link, teachingyoga.net slash focus dash and dash flow. That's all for this week. I would love it if you found this episode to be helpful, if you would go to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the 200 plus yoga teachers who have already left reviews and star ratings for this podcast. Also, thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.